Today I chat to Matt Glendinning, Head of School at Moses Brown in the USA. In this episode, I discuss timeless Quaker values, becoming a viral internet sensation, and keeping the spotlight on diversity. You know, I want to talk about leadership style and your own personal style. I saw a video of you singing Frozen that went viral and made national news. How important is it to be an authentic leader? Yeah, great question. I appreciate the mention of the Frozen video. Firstly, I want to correct the record by saying that that beautiful voice that you heard in the video <laughs> is not mine, which is why it's kind of a joke. That voice belongs to our choral director, Justin. I'm just lip syncing to the words of the song that were written by our um, communications director, and the thing was filmed by a member of our communications staff. It was a tremendous collaboration, but it was totally campy in that my job was just to act silly and lip sync on the screen. But that said, in answer to your question, Authenticity is, is important and essential. I work in a Quaker school where one of the principal values is integrity, and our school's motto is actually for the honor of truth, which were words spoken by our founder, a guy named Moses Brown, in describing why he wanted to create a school. To us, that motto for the honor of truth means not only, obviously, as a school, the seeking of truth and knowledge, but also being truthful in all things and being true to oneself, I would say. We try to create an environment where it's safe for everyone to bring their whole selves to work every single day. And that can be modeled by the head of school, and I think it needs to be. If that Frozen video showed anything, it's maybe that I try not to take myself too seriously. I try to have fun with my work. And um, we have to remind ourselves we work in schools, after all, with children. So play and joy should definitely be part of what we do every day. When you look at a video like that, that particularly does go viral, you kind of go, okay, it's, it's definitely the comms director's got you up to this. And, but you've got to be a willing participant. And, you know, you talked about authenticity. I like the idea of being approachable and, you know, leaders have to be approachable. They can't sit in their ivory towers and lead and direct. They have to be part of the community that everybody can come around. So how much of it did you think would be successful? Or did you just do it for your own community? Like, do you know what? We're going to have a laugh here. We're all going to come and do it. We're going to sing this thing. We're going to perform it. And if our community love it, it's done the job. Did you expect it to get the viral success it did? Well, we had a little inkling that it might because there's another school down in North or South Carolina here in the States that had done something similar a year before and it had really caused, uh, you know, gotten a lot of views on, on YouTube. Ours was a longer, somewhat more polished product. And we thought, well, maybe this will catch on. But what we didn't know is that we released it for the first snow day of the year. Millions of people were at home with nothing to do but watch YouTube videos. And that's why it blew up the way it did. We knew it was blowing up that night for two reasons. Firstly, I, I got an uh, email from my high school prom date, who I hadn't talked to in 40 years. I'm seeing you on YouTube. What's going on? And then secondly, uh, we heard from an alumnus of our school who was traveling in Italy. And he said he woke up and turned on CNN. And there we were on international CNN. It's a fantastic story. Timing's everything. But you talk about it being polished and doing it with real authenticity really made it. But yeah, shutting down the eastern seaboard, I remember that storm vividly because it made national news here in terms of that. In your eyes, can anybody lead? Are there certain traits and skills you need or can we teach leadership? Yeah, great question. I, I think the answer is yes, anybody can lead insofar as I don't think it requires formal leadership training to be a successful leader. Although there are a set of sort of, I would call them foundational skills or aptitudes that are, are necessary in almost any realm. 
To me, those include things like basic IQ, by which I mean like analytical ability and clear thinking, clear communication and decision making. I also mean the, the softer side of being a human being, sort of those EQ or emotional intelligence skills, the ability to listen and have empathy for others, understand one's own and others' emotional state, doing what you say and saying what you do, and in those ways, building strong relationships. I think leadership is absolutely all about relationships. It requires understanding people's strengths, getting them into the right seat, as Jim Collins says in his famous book, Good to Great, and then developing a vision with your community that really is, is both transformational, but also realistic and achievable at the same time. To me, those are traits that make a great leader. And do you think the traits of leadership have changed as you know we look around our 365, 24-7 world, heavily connected? You know, I talk about the micro generations a lot. You know, I know that there's very distinct generational boundaries between my grandfather, my father, and my father and me. And then I look down at me and my children. And just between my eldest and my youngest, I see micro-generational differences. Do you think leadership traits have changed and need to change to adapt to the world around us? Well, in some ways, yes. Probably others, no. I think um, the world is changing so fast. Technology is so pervasive. We're all getting pulled away from human relationships and more towards technological forms of data and interaction, especially during the pandemic. But that doesn't mean that human relationships and the ability to forge them is any less important at all. You know, I don't know for sure, but it feels like every year my job gets busier. I have to multitask even more and more each year. And maybe that's new, but I suspect if you would ask leaders 30 years ago, they might've said they felt the same. Yeah. It's multi-channel. I think we're always on. There's always something going on. It's finding that time to break out, relax for some detox you know, to unplug, I think it's hugely important. We don't do enough of it. Your school, a Quaker school, is 236 years old and follows the mantra, honor the past, embrace the future. Can schools truly prepare students for the future if they remain rooted in the past? I think most schools, no matter their age, and, and ours is 236 years old, um, we all face an inherent tension between past and future. And I think a lot of schools want to be innovative, but oftentimes find themselves maybe weighted down a little bit or held back by tradition. Tradition is a bit of a buzzword. Sometimes it gets a bad reputation in schools for being viewed as code for, you know, sort of old fashioned or stuck in the past or using outdated practices or sometimes even discriminatory practices. And I think that's true in some schools. However, I, I think it's important to be conscious of and try to preserve key elements of schools' traditions. Um, so much of a school's identity is tied into its inherited practices and its cultural memory, the way it has done things in the past. And those provide a sense of continuity and, and identity and pride even. That said, though, um, here's a scary fact for you. If you look back at, there's a, there's a handbook of uh, American private schools published by Porter Sargent. And if you look back at that publication from 100 years ago, only about a third of the schools in that publication still exist today. If schools fail to keep their gaze focused firmly on the future and fail to evolve, you know, to keep pace with changing times, they're going to get left behind. I don't want that to happen to our school. Um, and nobody does, of course. At Moses Brown, we shaped our recent strategic planning process around that sort of productive tension between our past and, and where we want to go in the future. We used a, a human-centered design process to, to generate our strategic plan. And we started it with a driving question, which was, this is back in like 2012, our youngest students will graduate from college in the year 2030. And the careers they're likely to aspire to, the technologies they're going to use in their lifetimes, they probably haven't even been invented yet. So in light of that reality, how does a school stay true to its time-tested approaches, but also evolve to meet the needs of that those kids? You know, we have to prepare them for jobs, um, prepare them to answer questions that don't even exist yet. So that kind of questioning led us to some great conversations and insight that 
allowed us to take some innovative steps here at the school. Yeah. And you talk about, I mean, the human-centered approach, it has to be. It has to be people-focused, people-led. Technology is exponential. We cannot change that steep curve it's going on. And it's things are being invented every day that will affect our children's lives and the kids that you've got coming through your school. And there's nothing we can do. What we need to do is we haven't evolved as fast as technology. We never will do. You know, while technology is doing this, we're doing this. And how do you marry the two? Because we're being caught up in the wake of technology. And then we're here going, well, we're still kind of the same. We're getting our dopamine rush and our addiction. One of the hardest things I find my nine-year-old tell me is, and he said it a few days ago, he went, dad, I'm bored. And I went, how can you be bored? He goes, I'm just bored. And it's because he had he'd gone from device to device to device. It was a bit cold outside. His friends weren't online. And like, we were doing stuff. And he just said, I'm bored. And I just don't think we teach boredom. When I was his age, I was kicked outside. It was like, yes. no, you're never bored. Go and kick your brother. Go and there's a ball. Go and do something. So Quakerism has some useful values. Can you tell me a bit about them and how they help create the leaders of tomorrow? Yes. Um, I, I'm not a Quaker myself, but I have always felt a sort of natural kinship with Quaker principles and, and practices ever since I first encountered them. And my, my first job out of graduate school was teaching um, at a Quaker school in Philadelphia starting back in 1996. I'm a historian and an archaeologist, and, and maybe because of that, the long history of Quakerism and its impact um, has always resonated with me. I like being part of an organization and a, and a story. It's really a progressive narrative. If you think about it, Quakers have played a, a leading role in just about every social change movement in American history from you know, the abolition of slavery, women's suffrage, prison reform, peace activism, and education. Quakers found and still run some of the oldest schools in the U.S. And um, I really like being part of a network of, of 80 really thriving schools. And there's a national advocacy organization for Quaker schools called the Friends Council on Education. I'm really proud to be a part of that organization. So in terms of Quaker values, um, they are often codified by an acronym, which is SPICES, which stands for Simplicity, Peace, Integrity, Community, Equality, and Service, or sometimes we say the S stands for Stewardship. These are obviously fundamental human values. They're not unique, per se, to Quakerism. Um, but we do find that they um, these are values that are as relevant today to the world as I think they were when William Penn was founding Quaker schools in Philadelphia back in the 17th century. Uh, they may be even more relevant, actually. Those of us who work in Quaker schools often say, only half-jokingly, that Quaker values seem to be the antidote to just about everything that's ailing the modern world. And uh, they are the, the way that we foster engaged global citizenship in our students. Apart from the values, um, friends are also known for a unique set of um, practices. Um, for example, we hold a weekly meeting for worship, also known as Quaker meeting, where we all sit in silence. Anyone who's there can share a thought or concern at any time with the community. And it's a great tool and forum for building a sense of community in a school, um, fostering skills like mindfulness, uh, which has become so important these days, and also fostering a sense of you know, spiritual identity or spiritual self-awareness. And also Quaker institutions are well known for um, making decisions not by voting, but by consensus, or that's more properly called a sense of the meeting decision-making process. It's hard work. It requires listening and compromising and trusting in the wisdom of everybody present. Um, it requires everybody to be willing to speak their truth in real time in the meeting, but then having done so to sort of release that truth to the group listen to how a group is leaning and be willing to join, if one can, join in in a consensus decision. 
The benefit of this, even though it's hard work and slow, is that it means that a minority voice can't be drowned out or ignored in a Quaker institution. Uh, like I think of our modern national government here, and you know we're so closely divided. Something couldn't go forward in a Quaker institution if a community was that divided like we, are, we seem to be nationally. Quaker process tends to keep a community feeling whole, uh, and it empowers everybody to move forward together. I mean, the silence, I think, is a hugely important piece. And I think all schools should adopt that because we spend so much time filling every single void with doing something. Every microsecond, it feels like it has to be filled with doing something. You know, we need to take time out to reflect, to feel, to be able to move forward. I think it's important. So that, um, and that, that's a great value. I think every school is, is, is adopted. Every student at the school is required to participate in a Quaker meeting once per week. They don't love it um, in real time. Um, you know, everybody always has something they, they think they need to be doing or would rather be doing than, you know, sort of this enforced period of silence. But interestingly, our alumni tell us they miss that sort of rigor or regimen of, of silence and reflection. It's important even if you don't realize that it's having an impact on you. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I mean, do you think that the Quaker education is really just misunderstood as well? Is it hidden behind it's, oh, it feels like a quirky cult or, you know, is it secret handshakes? Yeah, that's another good question. I think at least the Quakers that I'm familiar with on the East Coast here in the U.S. do not proselytize. They're not interested in sort of um, spreading that that message or or set of practices, although they certainly would welcome more members. Um, Quakerism, one of its strengths is also one of its liabilities in that it's it's a very welcoming and all-encompassing spiritual practice. Doesn't dictate dogma or tell you exactly what you need to do or believe or say. And because of that, it's hard to explain what it is. I often found um, other religious traditions that are a little bit more prescribed. It's easier to say what it is and what it isn't. And therefore, maybe people can more clearly make a choice whether they want to participate or not. Quakerism is a little bit more nebulous in its individualized spiritual practice. And therefore, it's hard to get people to really understand what it is unless you experience it yourself. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned you're not actually a Quaker yourself. So obviously leading a Quaker school, do you find this external perspective as a helpful, you know, juxtaposed to running and leading that school? Or is there another reason why you weren't brought into becoming a Quaker yourself? Big picture, you know, the percentage of Quakers working in and learning at Quaker schools declined significantly in the 20th century, as did the number of Quakers in the U.S. Uh, overall. I think that number is now around 100,000, possibly even less. Remarkably, though, Quaker schools are numerous here. They're thriving. They continue to embrace and um, authentically put into practice the values that I was just talking about. Most of that is being done by non-Quakers, interestingly. And I suppose if there's any advantage to to being a non-friend in a friend school, it's it's perhaps analogous to what new converts or adoptees to any religion or social movement bring, which is you know sort of a fresh zeal and energy that that come from having made a conscious choice to join an organization rather than having grown up with it, and and that brings sort of an appreciation for what the organization stands for and a very active sense of commitment to advancing that mission. And I, I know I have certainly felt that in my 25-year association with Quaker schools. And what attracted you to join Moses Brown? It was a couple of things. First and foremost, it was its Quaker identity. Back 12 years ago, when I was beginning to think about possibly um, looking at headships, I only wanted to look at Quaker schools. Um, this school is located in New England. I happen to have grown up in New England, so it felt like like home to me. And um, it's a fairly large three-division school with a lot going on and had a strong vision for um, global education, which is a real passion of mine. So it felt like a great fit, and I'm, I'm glad they felt the same way. 
exactly. Um, I'd like to touch on some diversity, if, if I may, and some inclusion issues. Schools, especially independent schools across the world, have been looking a lot harder at themselves since the killing of George Floyd. What does Moses Brown do to ensure diversity across the student and staff body? Well, it's a combination of sort of high-level philosophical thinking and then just on-the-ground uh, practical day-to-day work. Philosophically, I think it's necessary to recognize that diversity, equity, and inclusion are critical components of educational excellence. Like, you know, just as students need to learn how to read and write and think critically and think numerically, they also need preparation for the kind of diverse and pluralistic world they're going to enter uh, after us when they go to college and, and beyond. All of our students need to develop comfort and familiarity working with and learning from people from different backgrounds. Uh, I guess that's what you might call cultural competency. And for us, that means we want our students learning about the history of inequality and racism in this country. And for white people in particular, that means working to understand the system of unearned advantages that come from being white in America and learning how to use those advantages to be actively anti-racist. If that kind of philosophical level of understanding is reached in a school, then, then diversity really becomes sort of just a natural expression of the school's mission or identity. At the more practical level, um, you know, of course, you have to have curriculum and training that's involved, uh, but that, that only gets you so far. I think there's a lot of interesting research that suggests that the best way to promote appreciation for diversity and, and awareness for inclusion and cross-cultural understanding is what I sometimes refer to as proximate diversity, which just means having a really diverse population at your school so that everybody in the school has the opportunity to know people from a lot of different backgrounds, race, socioeconomic level, sexual orientation, religion, you name it. So that's been a major focus of ours over the past decade or so. We have really increased racial and socioeconomic diversity in our school deliberately and substantially. Some of the things we did to make those changes, setting priorities from, you know, from the board level on down through our school that, that diversity is important, that we have specific targets that we're trying to reach. We had to broaden our outreach to feeder schools um, and other networks locally to be in touch with and get to know more diverse applicants, you know, students, I mean. And then in terms of our faculty and staff, you know, we had to allocate resources for some training, particularly anti-bias training in our hiring process. So it's a, it's a lot of practical things together with philosophical approaches, I think, that allow you to make advancements in diversity. And it's not an overnight fix. This has been going on for a long time. And, but it's right that all schools look at themselves. And, you know, it's great to see that you're looking from the board down, board, senior leadership, teacher recruitment, because it has to reflect the real world and also your local community. Bias training, I think, is important because we don't know what big white middle class man you know I'm, I'm in that part of society that we kind of have everything do you think schools should be doing more of that sort of positive education bias training to the students as well as the staff I think so. The trick is finding the right balance because there is, of course, there are um, basic academic skills and content that we also want to convey to students to properly prepare them. But as I said, we very much believe that cultural competency is just important a skill as, you know, knowing algebra or whatever. And so we are taking a fresh look at our curriculum to make sure that students are being exposed to different voices and perspectives across different academic areas. You know, not just choosing different kinds of readings in our English curriculum, but using different kinds of pedagogies in, in different subjects, making sure that all students feel comfortable participating and have a chance to thrive in our school. We use racial affinity groups periodically with our students so that students really have a chance to share and learn closely about racial identity development, which is not something that I ever talked about or learned about as a teenager. 
we feel that if we can get to kids with that kind of thinking and awareness training, when they're still in a very formative stage, that can really make a long-term difference for themselves and whatever community they find themselves in. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's, it's all those areas, even around diversity, around inclusion, you talk about sexual orientation. There's so much. And I feel the biggest problem we have right now, I sit on the fence when it comes to social media and digital. I think it's the most incredible thing that we all have access to and obviously online. But then there's the other side of it, that it's this black hole to lots of stuff that we just can't control. And our children have access to this. Should we be doing more? I look at myself and my wife, you know, with our kids, and we, we don't know. And I'm, I'm in this field. Yeah, I, I think that's essential. Our um, recent diversity, equity, inclusion strategic plan has some emphasis on trying to get parents more involved in these conversations through, you know, a variety of parent programs that we offer here at school, um, you know, guest speakers and different films and uh, other events like that. We have some tools and communications that we send home to try to foster, to have those continue at, at home. The challenge is that you can't mandate it. Um, to be honest, often the people who participate in events like that, parents, I mean, are the ones who are already convinced and fairly adept at this work anyway. And you're not reaching the people who you would most like to reach. So that, that's, a, that's a challenge for most schools. You can't really mandate parent participation and things like that, but it um, doesn't mean you can't keep trying. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the important message is that parents need to be aware. They need to know that they can. Parents want to be their kids' best friends. Very different. And sometimes parenting becomes second because you don't want to upset them. We almost act when something goes wrong. They seem okay until they're not okay. And then you go digging and go, oh, oh I didn't realize that and this. We're all so caught up in our own lives that, that's so busy. So I think as long as that's a constant message going back to parents, that please take an interest in your child. You have to ask those tough questions. Um, I want to finish up with two questions. The first one is, do you think that college entry and the matriculation needs to change to be more fit for purpose for the future world and what employers are looking for? And is that stopping the way that education needs to evolve? You know, you've talked about great values. You've talked around skills that the kids need. I think so. And there are a couple of movements happening here that signal some potential change. Firstly, largely due to the pandemic, but also due to some other factors. A lot of colleges and universities have jettisoned requiring standardized test scores for their applicants. Those tests, you know, the SATs and advanced placement were designed, you know, 70, 80 years ago, intended to provide more people access to um, higher level courses and a way to measure a student's academic aptitude in a way that levels the playing field, so to speak. But of course, there's all kinds of research that suggests that it, it actually does the opposite of that. It just advantages people who come from families with a long tradition of, uh, of education. The future of those tests, you know, if those go away entirely, um, that will free up a lot of time and attention for schools like mine to think differently about how we're preparing kids and what kind of knowledge colleges say they're, they're valuing. And there's some signs that that's happening. Uh, there's an interesting collection of schools in the U.S. that are focusing on less by using letter grades and more by assessing mastery of particular skills. And so a transcript of one's high school years would look quite different than, you know, English A. Instead, it would be, you know, how do you do in the area of creative problem solving? It's too early to tell whether colleges are really going to value and take into account that sort of information. But I, I think that's a brilliant way to think about ed how education is evolving. And uh, yeah. I'd love to see that continue. Because they hold the power. We're certainly seeing a shift in the UK. And again, you look at employers. And it's actually what employers want. The employers want the creative problem solvers. They want the critical thinkers. They want the ones who understand empathy and human behavior. You know, you talk about the tech firms and the areas that the new generation are going into. They're less into the professions. You know, we don't need any more lawyers. Yes, we need doctors. I'm delighted to hear that there is some change happening. 
Matt, thanks ever so much for finding time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this afternoon. I wish you and all the community at Moses Brown a, a happy and safe time. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Take care. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.